Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 16, Why People with Dementia Refuse Help. I am just so excited that I have, I believe, 50 listeners. Hooray. I know there's other people with podcasts who have 50,000, but hell, I've only been doing this for a couple of months, so I am freaking excited. And I can see that I have listeners, not just in the United States, but in the UK, Thailand, Australia, and the Netherlands, and Germany. Okay, in last week's podcast, I talked about ways to help a person living with dementia maintain their abilities to do activities. In today's podcast, I will talk about why people with dementia refuse help even though we can clearly see that they need it. There are three main general causes of care refusal behavior. Lack of awareness, also known as anisognosia, the automatic no, and refusals based on fear. In today's podcast, I will explain those three causes. In next week's podcast, I will talk about what to do when people with dementia refuse help. And part of the reason why I'm splitting up these podcasts is otherwise I'm going to have like an hour-long podcast. I know there are people who love podcasts that are at least an hour long. My daughter, when she's listening, why she's doing extractions and other things that she does at work, she likes the long podcasts. I personally don't. I like to listen to little chunks, maybe because I have, like, no attention span, no idea. But that's why I'm splitting the content up into two podcasts. So, let's jump right in. I did mention the term anisognosia. Anisognosia means that people with dementia are completely unaware of the memory problem. This unawareness extends to their need for help. People living with dementia may not know that they are having problems paying bills or having problems driving. Anisognosia is different from denial, and this is why. When I'm in denial about something, I choose to ignore a scary problem or to see the scary problem as not so bad so that I can temporarily deal with life. Denial is a defense mechanism. When I am finally physically, mentally, psychologically able to handle that situation, my denial breaks. This is because deep down in my brain, I knew that I was facing a scary problem, but I had to mentally bury the scary problem until I was able to face it. Believe it or not, denial can be a healthy temporary coping method. 
People, though, get in trouble when denial becomes a way of life. But that is not what I'm talking about here. Anisognosia, on the other hand, happens because I forget that I forgot. If I am unable to remember that I have a scary problem, then I simply do not have a scary problem. I forgot that I just asked you the same question five times. I forgot that I nearly wrecked the car. I forgot that I got lost coming home from the store yesterday. Now, when you tell me that this is the sixth time I'm asking you the same question, I become angry because I don't remember those other five times. I'm thinking, no, it's not. I've never asked you that question. This is the first time I asked the question. Or if you tell me that I got lost yesterday coming home from the store, I'm going to look at you like you were crazy because I don't remember getting lost yesterday. I'm thinking, you know, what are you talking about? In all at the beginning, but as dementia worsens, that lack of awareness will, will show up. And anisognosia is tricky, especially in the mild stage of dementia, because the person living with dementia is completely 100% not aware that she, he or she is having problems. Or if they find that something is hard, they may create reasons like, I'm just tired or I don't feel like dealing with paying bills today. You, on the other hand, are looking at the situation and want to step in to help, but aren't sure how to do it. Now, there are some types of dementia, vascular dementia, for example, where people may be aware uh, that they're having problems. They're aware that their memory isn't quite up to speed or they may have recall that they tried to get home from the store yesterday and they got lost. So anisognosia, while it happens in many cases of dementia, may not occur in all types of dementia. You may be noticing that my sound sort of gets loud and sometimes it gets muted, What's going on is, as I'm recording this, I have software that removes extraneous sounds like a dog barking. Well, my little pandemic puppy, Amira, has decided that because I'm recording and I'm sounding very playful, she thinks that I want to play. I'm always happy when I record podcasts, and she picks up on that happiness, and now she's bringing me a squeaker ball. So there are times when I'm recording this, and she's quiet, so you'll hear the sound become crisper, and then there's other times where she's uh, squeaking her little ball, and the program is removing the squeaks, which is great, but it's also mushing the sound quality. So I apologize for that, but... As I said in the description, I'm a hell of an expert with dementia behaviors. I'm a freaking novice here with podcasting. Now I'm going to talk about the automatic no. As dementia worsens, you may see the automatic no pop up. People with dementia towards the end of the moderate stage 
often say no to nearly every question or request. This is an incredible challenge for caregivers. The earliest words uttered by babes are usually mama and no. Any parent can relate to the no word. No is how we protect children from harm and teach them how to behave. Even if we make the home environment as safe as possible, no remains important as our children get older and go outside into the world. They learn to use no to establish boundaries. Phrases like just say no and no means no are embedded, at least in the North American culture. When the toddler first ever uses the word no, he or she may not be refusing anything. They are simply trying out their teeth and tongues, repeating this cool new thing they learned to do. When my youngest was learning to talk, and no was one of his earliest words, I really was shocked. I thought shit or damn it was going to be one of his earliest words. His two older sisters loved to tease him by asking him questions, knowing that he would say no. So Claire might be eating some ice cream, and she would look at him and say, Mark, do you want some ice cream? Mark, who was just learning to talk, would smile and reach for the ice cream, but he would say no. And Claire would respond, oh, I'm sorry, you said no, and then continue to eat her ice cream. Now, in her defense, I think she was like nine years old. At this point, Mark would start to cry and carry on, and I would think to myself, did I take my birth control pill today? As adults, we continue to use the word no. Sometimes we use it to protect ourselves from negative choices. No, I am not going to date that moron again. Or no, I'm not going to eat candy bars for breakfast. I have to save them for the trick or and treaters, which I foolishly bought candy way before Halloween, which is this week, and that was a bad idea. Sometimes we struggle to use the no word to avoid being overcommitted or to set boundaries for, you know, fear that we might be disappointing others. We don't want to be that person. So the bottom line is that our use of the word no starts around the same time we are learning to uh, beat ourselves with our fingers, and then we use it multiple times a day from age oh, 10, 11, 12 months, all the way until we're very old. So the use of the word no, eventually, somewhere along the line, becomes a procedural memory. And a procedural memory is the memory of how to do something. If you listen to last week's episode, I created a, a pretty significant podcast all around procedural memories, and that's episode 15, if you are skipping around. As people with dementia move backward in time, it makes sense that the use of the word no remains even as a procedural memory, because the ability to say no will be among the last memories and abilities lost by a person with dementia. And just like my example of the toddler using the word without maybe quite grasping the full meaning, 
in dementia, the knowledge of the meaning may start to go away, even though the ability to make the word remains. And that's not something that's been proven. That's kind of a, a, a theory that I think is going on based on what I see with a lot of people who uh, refuse care. When working with persons with dementia, we immediately learn not to ask yes, no questions. We change our tactics and say, time to take a bath, instead of saying, do you want to take a bath? Or we may say, here are your medications. And yet, the person with dementia may still just look at us and say, no. Why could this be happening? The negative response could be happening because as the dementia gets worse, people can only hold on to a few words at a time, which I talked about in the earlier podcast when I talked about dementia-centric communication. We often use sentences that are just too long, or we try to explain why medications are important. Logic and explanations do not work. There is not enough available memory to process this information. When the number of words are greater than the brain capacity, the brain falls back on the procedural memory of no. The temporal lobes, which are the parts of the brain behind the temples, also eventually shrink in dementia. Sometimes they shrink earlier, like in front of temporal dementia. Other times they may shrink later down the road. These same lobes are often damaged after strokes, which is why people who have had strokes may have trouble understanding speech afterwards. The temporal lobes have a job where they link sounds to words. As the nerves die off in the temporal lobes and the temporal lobes shrink, people with dementia no longer understand speech. In fact, I have observed that many people with moderate dementia start to act as if they have a hearing problem. They respond with, what? What did you say? I can't understand. Then their caregiver takes them to get a hearing test, and the caregiver finds out their hearing is just fine. What's going on is, yes, the ears and the eardrum works, and the sound is getting to the brain, but the ability of the brain to pull the word out of the brain dictionary and link it to the sound is broken. Our words then lose meaning. The result? Automatic no. So at this point, let's take a commercial break. I have a sponsor. I am a big girl podcaster. Yay! And once we're done with the commercial, I will talk about refusals based on fear. So come right back. Welcome back. Let's move on and talk about refusals based on fear, which is the third cause of care refusal behavior. This behavior usually shows up at the same time people living with dementia need help with everyday activities like dressing and bathing. This is refusal 
based on fear. Let me explain. Let's say you are driving your car down the interstate and the vehicle in front of you comes to a dead stop. Immediately, your body takes over. You simultaneously slam on the brakes while swerving to avoid the car in front of you. Your heart is furiously pounding and you seem to see everything in slow motion. Afterwards, it may take several minutes for your heart to slow back down to normal. What I've just described is the automatic fear response. The fear response is governed by several parts of the brain known collectively as the limbic system or lizard brain. The fear response has automatic pieces, the fast heart rate, the fast breathing, sweating, and behavioral pieces. Your movements to run away or to fight or even to freeze. Using the driving example, when you saw the stopped car, the images traveled from your eye to a piece of the brain called the thalamus and then to another part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala interpreted the stopped car as a dangerous situation and it sent a signal right to your brainstem, which unleashed the automatic responses, the increased heart rate, the fast breathing, and the sweating. At the same time, the amygdala sent signals to the motor cortex part of your brain, which allowed the rest of your body to respond to the threat by trying to avoid the collision. You slammed on the pedals and swerved. You were trying to flee from a potential accident. Let's talk about how your brain can tell the difference between something that is truly a threat and something that is not. Let's say I am afraid of spiders and one of my friends want to play a nasty prank on me. I go to my desk and see this big, nasty, scary spider. The same freeze, flee, fight response initially kicks in, but oh, I realize that the spider is a Halloween decoration because Halloween is in a couple of dates. This time, other parts of my brain kick in, particularly the hippocampus, or hippocampi, because there are two of them, which tell the amygdala that the spider is fake and not a threat. Before the full fight, fight, freeze response can rev up into high gear, my brain calms down. I now laugh at the situation and pick up the fake spider and use it to play a prank on someone else. This entire process takes nanoseconds, which means it feels immediate to you and to me. To recap, the amygdala is like a smoke detector. It beeps when there is smoke, regardless of the source of the smoke. I have to look around the house and figure out what is the source of the smoke. I act like the hippocampi and I figure out if the smoke alarm means dinner is ready or if the smoke alarm is letting me know my couch is on fire and I have to grab my animals and get the hell out of the house. When people have dementia, certain parts of the brain shrink, especially the hippocampi, which help the amygdala 
tell the difference between something that is really a threat and something that is not. This means that persons with dementia are more likely to become fearful and see danger in non-threatening situations. People living with dementia also have a sensitivity to facial expressions. By that I mean they are more likely to interpret a neutral facial expression as negative or angry. And they can recognize a very pleasant and smiling expression. This is why people with dementia will be less likely to resist care if you show up with a positive facial expression, if you are smiling. If you are not smiling, even though you're not mad or angry, people living with dementia may look at your neutral facial expression and associate your neutral expression with a negative emotion and then resist care. The bottom line is that some of the necessary care we try to provide to our family members with dementia may be accidentally scaring them. The changes in their brains make it difficult for them to tell the difference between a helping action and a harming action. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.